everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Surface. I'm Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I love talking with interesting people to find out their story, find out how that story, how that journey has impacted them and developed their mindset. So we talk with all kinds of people, their CEOs, their coaches, their agents, their athletes, their actors, and today we actually get to talk with a professional soccer player. Joanna Lohman plays for the Washington Spirit. And as you'll hear from Joanna, she's truly grateful to be able to play soccer professionally. She's had a long, windy road to playing professionally, and she truly loves what she does, and she loves the impact that soccer provides for her and the voice and the platform that it gives her to do a lot of the things that she loves doing in her life. Joanna's really a servant. She's somebody who believes in serving others. She believes in inspiring, and she's extremely passionate. She's somebody who has passion not just what she does every day, but passionate about her life and how she lives it. And she's a very authentic person. She's somebody who is unafraid to be vulnerable, but she also talks about some of her imperfections throughout the conversation that we had today. And she is someone who's always striving to grow. Uh, as you'll notice, she's very well read. She'll talk about growth mindset. She'll talk about deliberate practice, mastery. So we'll get into some sports psychology terms. But most of this conversation is about Joanna, the human and how that human has evolved and developed and changed and shifted over the years. So she gets in all kinds of aspects of her identity and also brings up the notion that she still doesn't fit into one box or or check one box as it relates to who she is as a person. Joanna also just recently tore her ACL, so she's going to talk about that experience and, and what she's learned from that as well. So I'm really excited to introduce Joanna to all of you. I know you'll appreciate this conversation. And without further ado, I present to you, Joanna Lohman. Joanna, thank you so much for coming in to the office. You are a Marylander and, and live nearby and, and play nearby, so I'm excited to have you in person and uh, really just want to find out your story. So if we could start, take me back to childhood. What was life like for young Joanna? And, and just try to paint that picture so we can get a sense of who the heck you are. Thank you so much, Brian, for having me on the show. And I would love to take you back to the baby Joe days. So I think uh, soccer has, the climate of soccer has changed a lot in the United States. And looking back in the time that I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, I played for the Bethesda Soccer Club. I played for, I think, at least a decade for that club, for the same team, generally the same teammates through all of my youth experience. And also uh, the coach was a father of one of the girls on my team. So I felt like my upbringing in soccer was very wholesome. I think that has changed a lot um, with a lot of different leagues coming out in youth soccer and it really becoming a business. So I was very thankful and grateful in my journey throughout. I think I always had that growth mindset. Um, my parents raised me to believe that anything I worked at, I would improve upon, I would get better. And it was, for me, always the focus is on mastery. And I have always been someone, for whatever reason, that falls in love with the process. I just get completely lost in it. And uh, from day one, I've always enjoyed practicing and training and getting better at something. Whether that was school or soccer or any sport that I played, I just, I would not settle for mediocrity. And you know, for me, the process of just getting better was, was the beauty of it. And considering I fell in love with that process, um, you know, I, I got better each day and I worked my way up through soccer. I started in club, and then I played for Maryland ODP program, which is the state team. 
Then I played for the regional team, and then eventually at the under-18 level, I made the U.S. national team. So before you go further, we got to unpack some of that, because you, you just threw a bunch of buzzwords <laughs> at me that are that are in my wheelhouse, right? You talked about mastery, growth mindset, um, a competitive spirit. You talked. You, you mentioned mom and dad. Did you think mom and dad had the biggest impact on you? Were there, it sounds like, coaches? Um, who were the people that were guiding you uh, and sort of maybe weren't making it a business as you sort of view it, as, as you said, today? I give a lot of credit to my parents. Uh, I, I don't think they would take that credit, but they've raised you know, three uh, incredible children. My sister is an associate dean at the Yale School of Management. My brother it works for the State Department. He's a foreign service officer, just moved over to Indonesia, and I'm a professional soccer player. So we're all you know, very successful in our own right. And I think my parents did an amazing job of allowing us to fall down and pick ourselves back up again. Uh, I think one of the things that has made me who I am today was the ability to fail. I failed a lot in my career, and I was never the, like, the star player all of the time. I always had to work for what I had earned, and also, too, my parents instilled that in us at, at work ethic. It was almost a blue-collar work ethic. What did mom and dad do for a living? What's their, what's their background? My father was a lawyer at that time, um, drove to Baltimore um, every single morning, um, got back by dinner time. My mother was a social worker uh, from Montgomery County Department of Social Services and Child Abuse. So she so saw some stuff. She did. And, you know, both of my parents... Um, Worked a full day, came home, never brought it home with them. We always had dinner together. We sat around the dinner table, talked about our days. And um, like I said before, they made sure that, that we worked for our grades in school, which we all you know, excelled in school. And also, too, for me, um, it was that enjoyment and the joy of playing sport. And they were always there to drive me to training. They came to my games. But it was never the, the, the sense of a helicopter parent. They never put any pressure on me. Uh, I did it because I had that love, that passion, and that drive to, to continuously go out and train. And uh, I think it really helped me that they had a hands-off approach where I knew um, I had unconditional love, but at the same time I didn't have that pressure of doing something I didn't want to do. You mentioned academics, and the background or who you said your siblings are, it sounds like they maybe achieved academically as well just based on what they're doing today. Was that something that was academics first, then athletics? And also, uh, what did your siblings do as far as athletics is concerned? Education was uh, the top priority in my, in my household, and that never wavered. Um, I created habits, you know, some great habits that I continued through high school. Where every day I got home, I did my homework, and then I would go to soccer training. And I just knew that was the order. And I knew in order to go to soccer training, I had to get my homework done, and I had to do well in my classes. And, um, you know, I'm, again, I'm very grateful for that because I know when I stop playing soccer, I will have a fantastic education to fall back on. And I think that is um, something that is irreplaceable. And your siblings, did they play sports? My uh, brother and sister both played sports, but nothing competitively like, like I did. They played in high school, but it wasn't to the extent where they were going to play in college. And when did you get the soccer bug? How early was that? And were there other sports that you also played when you were growing up? I started playing soccer when I was six years old. I, uh, my best friend, his mother, was our coach, and I played with mostly boys growing up because I was just I was a huge tomboy, and that's just kind of what I fell into. Um, I I had a love for the game from the Time second. Time out, sorry. When you were saying that I've never been the best player on my team, was that because you're playing with boys, or is it? Do you you still think that way? When because you you mentioned 
I was never really the best player on my team, but then you were sort of sliding in that you played for under 18 team. So like the way I envisioned it in my head is like under 18 US, it's usually like best from each state. I know Maryland has good soccer, but um, sorry. So just to go back one level, were you playing with boys until what age? I just want to sort of get get a sense for that. I think I'm selling myself short a little bit. Yeah, uh, most people do when they come on this podcast. It's like, it's one of the things that you find is like, most people say, oh yeah, I wasn't really that good. I'm like, okay, come on. Like, <laughs> let's be honest. I so try think, to be honest. With me. Of course. I always think of myself as a team player and I thought my club team was so successful because we didn't have any quote unquote stars. I, I would say I was one of the most consistent and the better players on the team, but I never looked at myself as a star. Um, and, and plus, you know, Making the U18 team, that's, that's older in, in youth soccer. Um, now they have you know, U16, U15, and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't make the national team until I was you know, getting ready to go to college. So you felt and like that was more of, of a growth process. So yeah. it wasn't necessarily you were the best player on your team when you were 12, but as you started building and growing and improving, you did get to a point where now you were maybe not a superstar, but you, you were the person that they looked at for consistency to compete and perform. Yeah, I, th- I think that, uh, like I told you earlier, is that my growth through the game was very, was very wholesome. Uh, it was very organic. So I was one of the better players on my club team and then became one of the better players on the regional team and consistently worked at my game. And then I became um, a part of the youth national team system. I was uh, captain of the U21 team and multiple Nordic Cups. And then I eventually got called up to the full national team where I have seven international caps. So... Uh, I, it was never something where I just erupted onto the stage, and I'm sure almost every professional athlete has a similar story where it's like you, you chip away, right? You chip away um, at a wall until eventually it breaks down, and that's kind of how I look at my, my youth career is that it was you know, step by step. Um, it was a process that almost climbing a ladder. And each rung I concentrated on and I climbed until I got to the top. And it sounds like you're passionate about that. I mean, you threw out the word process within first couple minutes of talking uh it sounds like you enjoyed that process once again that comes from sort of mom and dad sort of setting the example of putting you know your boots on and going to work every day and you know even though they're not necessarily blue collar workers in the sense that they're not in a factory or something but there is a blue collar work ethic that was instilled in you at a young age absolutely and you talk about the journey and I think the beauty lies within the journey, and I'm sure you talk about deliberate practice of understanding that it's not just any practice that makes you better. It's um, you have different zones. You have the comfort zone, the learning zone, and the panic zone, and it's making sure that you're practicing within your learning zone, and you can only do that for a certain amount of hours because it's a lot of exertion, um, and it and it gets tiring. So, I don't think I knew the vocabulary for all this when I was younger. I think it just it just sort of happened. And I really embraced it. I, I looked at life as, as building blocks, right? And I'm building my own foundation of my house. And it comes with creating good habits of, of doing my schoolwork and then going to practice. And it comes from understanding that, you know, if you work with passion and, and you work with vigor, if you don't necessarily get to be the number one player in the country, you're going to get to somewhere where you are a better human being and you have a stronger character because of it. You have such clarity around a lot of the things that we teach in, in psychology, right? So um, once again, mastery, growth mindset, process. Um, now you talk about deliberate practice. Uh, when did you start picking up that information? Because this isn't, you're, you're so, the words that you're choosing are, are deliberate. Um, when did you start to fall in love with learning about learning? 
I think it was uh, within college, probably, and after college. It's being a professional women's soccer player is there's a struggle to it, and uh, there's a lot of outside factors that you cannot control. You know, for instance, we are in our third league here in the United States. I've been through two failed leagues. I've spent a decade playing all over the country and all over the world, and we talked about failing. And I've oftentimes had to figure out, okay, plan A didn't work out. Now what is plan B? So how how do you mold? How do you adapt? How do you still continue to get better even if you can't do it in your own country? So I um, you know, spent years playing overseas. I would try to find the, the greatest training environment for me, and I would go and I would seek it out. And even if it meant living on you know, the 18th floor in a Tokyo high-rise and traveling an hour and a half to training where no one speaks English and I'm the worst player on the field, you know what? That's what's going to make me better. And I think within that process, I read a ton of books, you know, like Talent is Overrated. I learned about the 10,000-hour rule and how, you know, basically no one who has gotten to the top of their craft have has happened overnight. There's no such thing as overnight success. And I took, uh, I think I took a lot of, I put a lot of emphasis on that because I saw it in my own journey that you know each hour amasses to something that will make you greater. Awesome. Let's go back a couple steps. So uh, you're starting to get some recognition, maybe high school years as a soccer player. And I asked this question before, but I'm just curious, did you have other sports that you played? And, and I'm curious about it because of this shift toward, um, you know, focusing on one sport and, and, and just going that route versus playing multiple sports. So I just want to find out a little bit more about your story and uh, what other sports were you involved with in as a kid? Yeah, I think, you know, progress is, there's pluses and minuses to progress. I think sometimes you can know too much. And when I grew up, uh, it was very much an idyllic childhood. I, I belonged to a pool, I swam, I played tennis, I ran cross country in high school, I played basketball, I played softball. Uh, I had an older brother. We played football. We played rugby. We played street hockey. And you just you just named like ten sports. <laughs> <laughs> I did basically. I I did a lot. I was extremely active, and hopefully, you know that made me a a, a well-rounded athlete. Um, I'm 100% not the fastest player on the field, but I like to believe I have some intelligence, and I have, you know, with my age, I have grown to to know the sport a lot better. Um, and so yeah, I I did play a lot of sports, and I think um, that helped me a lot now. But soccer was the one where maybe you were excelling at the most and you started, was there a love for soccer? Was there a passion for soccer? Just walk me through the process to really hone in on that skill and, and try to go further with that. Yeah, I think soccer was my number one passion. I also was, was probably the best at that sport. Mm-hmm. And I did excel and I kept rising some, somewhat to the higher parts of each team that I played on and I enjoyed that rise. Uh, I also played tennis quite competitively and there was one point in my life where I had to choose between tennis and soccer. And I think how I'm, old were you when that when that happened? I was probably in middle school, so like thirteen or fourteen. Okay. And I think I just gravitated towards team sports. You know, I love being a part of a team. I love feeling like I belong to something, and I'm achieving a goal with a group of people that I really care about and I love. And I think that's a, such a unique experience that uh, you know I always seem to want to be a part of a group. It's so interesting you bring up tennis. I've interviewed so many people for this podcast who played tennis growing up. Oh, really? And, uh, I mean, one of them ended up playing pro tennis. But uh, there is so much value in tennis as a sport, and I'm sure you've thought about this at some point. A, because it does teach you have to be on an island, compete, deal with failure, and it's your fault that you double faulted. Mm -hmm. It's not anyone else's, and you have to own it. And the other thing that you mentioned earlier is the ability to focus for an extended period of time. And there is research around, hey, like 
after two hours, like you're not really going right. to be all there. Uh, so tennis teaches you have to have that sort of laser sharp focus that I think athletes need in general. But when you can take that individual skills that you learn from tennis, let alone footwork, fitness, I mean, let's just separate golf and tennis, for example. You know, golf, you're getting competitiveness. You're having to quiet your mind. There's mental aspects. You're on an island. There's no excuses, really. Um, but you don't necessarily get the technical skills that you would get from a sport like tennis. Uh, Dirk Nowitzki played tennis growing up. Uh, a lot of great pro athletes played tennis, and they developed footwork, and then mm-hmm. they developed this grit or this yeah. competitive spirit and this ability to focus. So tennis is an awesome sport, but it's not a team sport. And sure, there's doubles tennis, and there can be a team element to that, but it's interesting if you think about how can I leverage my experience as a tennis player into a 90-minute game where I've got a job to do in a space, and can I have the same focus that I would have if the ball's just coming back and forth? Um, so that dynamic in those two sports, like I've got a uh, year-and-a-half-year-old and a, a four-month-old, so you start thinking, and when you're in the sports world, you start thinking, yeah. and you see your son throw a ball, or you see your daughter smile, and whatever those things. My, my son's older and my daughter's younger, so she hasn't started throwing yet. She probably will soon. <laughs> um, but you start thinking about, all right, what would be great for their development as human beings, mm-hmm. like you said. And I think about tennis as being a really good sport, and but it misses the team component. Yeah. And then you think about soccer being a really good sport, but you can also just blend in, and mm-hmm. maybe you don't learn how to take off and, and take yeah. ownership over yeah. like, oh, we lost a game because our goalie let in a goal yeah. or the coach didn't put me in a position. Or, There's excuses that you can have in a mm-hmm. sport that's a team sport. So I love the blending of the two. And I think um, a lot of times when parents come to me and ask me my thoughts on s- specialization, I often think like, oh, well, like you can take some from each sport yeah. and then you get to an age where, yeah, like it, when you get to like high school, a lot of times it does make sense, especially after ninth or tenth grade, to then focus on one sport. Um, but that's not the only way, and there are tons of great athletes who played multiple sports. Like it sounds like you did in high school too. But I, I find that I'm so happy you brought up tennis because I just think it's a sport that doesn't get its due as a developmental sport uh, and what it teaches. And uh, I just think it's it's it, there's a lot of good in tennis other than the teamwork component. Yeah. That's also really valuable mm-hmm. that you can get in team sports. Um, okay, so you. Get you get into college. Where do you go? What do you do? Uh, what's the process like after high school? So again, um, you know, I'm 35 now, so we're talking about over a decade ago. But uh, I ended up going to Penn State University, and I wouldn't say I was heavily, heavily recruited out of college. Uh, UNC was the top school in the country um, for years and years and years. I didn't didn't really get a sniff from UNC, but that was okay because I wanted to play somewhere where I felt like I would contribute right away. And also, too, I only looked at schools where I felt like we're on the right level academically. So I looked at Duke, um, Penn State, UVA, and Michigan. And I ended up choosing Penn State just because I felt like it fit me as a, you know, as a student and as an athlete um, and as a person. So I really enjoyed my time at Penn State. I, you know, I excelled both on and off the field. Um, I was an All-American. I was an academic All-American. Um, but I was a very different person in college, so I... Uh, I love Penn State, and you know I look back with very fond memories, but as a human being, I think that was a period of tremendous growth for me. Um, as I'm sure you know, I'm, I'm quite an advocate for the LGBTQIA community now. You know, I'm an, an out professional athlete, but in college, I was, I was still straight. So it just it seems like I was on a different planet. Straight on the inside or straight on the outside? 
both. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I was I was engaged to a man at the age of 21. Wow. I came out at uh, 21, 22, and I always say I got hit by the gay stick and I came flying <laughs> out of the closet, but that was the truth. And uh, ever since then, I, I haven't so really looked back. Were you engaged in college, 21? Yeah, that my senior year I was engaged. Wow. Yeah. So I, I feel like I've, I've transitioned a lot. Um, I've really, I've, it's uncomfortable to, to really look in the mirror and analyze who you are and to ask yourself those types of questions. And uh, luckily for me, I've, I've never been one um, who has shied away from a challenge or shied away from something that makes me feel uncomfortable. I would often put myself in situations where I was uncomfortable because I knew that's where the growth was. So uh, I want to unpack it a little bit. So uh, you're in college, you're succeeding academically, you're succeeding athletically, you're succeeding socially, uh, if, I mean, however you define success, right. but I guess from the outside looking in, you would be seen as somebody who has their shit together. Right. Um, what caused you to shift or what caused uh, you to not just ride that out? Because there are a lot of people that do just ride that out and then mm-hmm. they come out of the closet when they're 50 or um, they, or they don't. Um, right. What caused you to take a, a turn when from the outside looking in, maybe others, and I, I'm just guessing, would have looked at you and be like, yeah, she's got everything together. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, we talked earlier about failure. I think that sport has that unique capacity to teach you how to lose and how to fall down and get back up again. So I, I don't think I was ever one that was scared of putting myself out there. Vulnerability. And vulnerability. And I had always been unabashedly myself. You know, when I was younger, I was a tomboy. I played with all of, um, all of my boy, you know, younger guy friends. And I tried to be as, as true to myself as I could. And I think society, you know, they want to fit you into neat little boxes. And I often didn't fit into those boxes. Uh, at first, when you're younger, I think that uh, you get a little bit hesitant about that because you're taught to fit in. And you're, you're taught not necessarily to rebel and stand out as much. But as I got older, you know, I realized personally that it's very important for me to be happy and to be authentically happy. And you say as you got older, is there... Like in college, yeah. I think at the end of college, I, uh, I realized that, you know, I, I probably I wasn't living um, to be my best self. And I think that does a disservice to who I am and the people that are in my life. So at your core as a human being, you valued vulnerability. You valued your identity and, and being who you wanted to be. And there comes a crossroads where you look in the mirror and say, like, wait a second. If I value these things, does this make sense for me to go in this direction? Right. Yeah, I think that's perfectly said. Um, I don't think I knew. You know, as soon as I, I knew, I, I couldn't ignore it. It wasn't something that for me was really a you know a voluntary choice it was this is how I feel like internally and that's as you can tell I'm an extremely passionate person and if I feel something deep to my core I I have to um, pursue that are you a gut person or a head person like do you trust your gut more or your head more I think I'm a mixture I think at this point in my life I know exactly who I am and what I want and that comes from uh, a lot of experiences where you know I've I've failed or I've had my heart broken and I've been forced to put it back together and every time that you do you learn something new about yourself. So I think for me personally, depending on the situation of you know whether it's a heart or a mind thing, but 
I think the beauty of, of once you start to figure out who you are, those two things are so connected. Like there's not much dissonance between the two. Like what you think is what you feel because you're so true to who you are. And I, I'm lucky enough that I've explored um, you know, myself and I've explored this world enough to, to have that connection be so strong between my head and my heart. So failure is something you've brought up over and over again, being okay with failure and not being afraid of failure. Um, how does that work as an athlete? Like, Because I have this theory that great athletes fear failure in their preparation. Um, so they fear failure like, I will not fail. And it may even lead to a good conversation about your ACL. It's like th- there's a... Um, single-mindedness to like failure is not an option um but then when they step on the stage they're fearless mm-hmm. um, or they're trying to find that fearlessness yeah. and so like when i hear like i'm not afraid to fail or you know fail, first of all i think everyone's afraid to fail mm-hmm. um it's just how are we showing it and b fear of failure can be a massive tool in our toolbox yeah. um as long as we don't bring it to the stage. Um, so what are your thoughts on, on sort of that notion? Yeah, I mean, let's talk about failure. I think, you know, failure is a word with a negative connotation. I think uh, there are perceived failures, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a perception. So me, for me personally, I think I've learned the most in my career when I have not gotten what I wanted. Is that failure? To some extent, yes, but at the same time, it's... As long, you know, in my head, as, as long as I prepare to the best of my ability and my effort is what I expect of myself, someone's going to win and someone's going to lose in sports. Can you give me an example of one of those times? Because you said yeah, I've, learned, I've learned the most when I have not gotten what I wanted. Can you just talk, yeah. give me an example of that? So in you know, 2007, I was um, in residency with the Women's World Cup team. I was one of the last three people who were cut. And you know that was that was heartbreaking for me to work that hard and, and get so close and to not um, not make it to the World Cup. Dream for you from a young age was that something that was real for you or like when did that, that yeah. idea come out? Yeah, it it was real for me, but at the same time, Brian, I, I believed in the process and the beauty of the journey. So I just I was almost you know I was along for this incredible ride, and the World Cup would would have been the ultimate prize. But at the same time, when I when I got cut and I got sent back home to Maryland, you know, I landed, my dad picked me up and I burst into tears. But, um, and I, this is what happens usually when, when I, my heart is broken. And this has happened so many times in my career with the World Cup. Um, I, have, I have an incredible story about the championship game last season where I was completely shattered. And then with my ACL, it's, I spend two or three days where you, you sort of mourn the death of what you thought your life could have been. Mm. And, um, after that, you realize that you have to let go because there's so much in life that you cannot control. And all you can control really is your, your attitude, your concentration, and your effort. And you know, one of my favorite quotes is to give anything less than your best is a sacrifice the gift by Steve Prefontaine, the famous runner. And that's, that's how I wake up every morning and I, I go to bed every night and just think to myself, have I given my best? And if you I've really done that, do focus on math, you focus on mastery, you focus on growth. You focus on those things. I want to just go into those two or three days um, of mourning. Mm-hmm. Are you then thinking, at what point, like I would imagine, let's just use the cut, your cut from the World Cup. Initial reaction, is it like, F them, I'll show them? Or does that not come out? Is that Do you not have that 
Yeah, so I've had two recent experiences, which are um, much more you know in my mind than yeah, the 2007. So uh, the championship game with the Washington Spirit last season, uh, it was the best season of my career. I started 18 of 21 games. I was uh, tied for the second leading goal scorer. I contributed to a level that I'd never have before. And this and is at age 34. This too. is at age 34. I had somewhat of a resurgence. And I was so invested in the team. I was so incredibly vulnerable because I cared so much. I was, it was terrifying at moments that I cared this much about what I did. And cared that much about winning? No, not necessarily. Just about um, winning, but at the same time, you know as a professional athlete, you know, with injuries, with, with anything, it can, it's so fleeting. Happiness is, a, is not something that's consistent. It's something you constantly seek and you try to find. And I was so happy. When I looked at my life, I thought to myself, I have everything I have ever wanted. Mm. I'm playing professionally on, on the world stage. I'm playing for my hometown team. All my friends, all my family can come. I'm contributing. I'm playing you know, significant minutes. I walk off the field, and I'm drenched in sweat, and I know that I've given my all, and my team has won, and we're pursuing this incredible goal of the championship, which I've played in before, but it didn't have that same magnitude because I loved my teammates and everything about it. It was just... It was, it was so perfect that I knew, you know, those things, those moments cannot last forever. Yeah. Um, and my career has taught me that, right? My career, when I look at it, you know, it, it's had a way of, of building me up and putting me on a precipice and then completely knocking me down at my knees. Mm. And I'm proud to say that because the last two soccer games I've played in, I've walked off in tears. And one of them was a championship game where uh, I started the semifinal. You know, we were... Um, Going to the final, we flew out on a Wednesday. The game was on a Sunday. It was the greatest stage I would ever play on in my career. Our team was was a, was amazing that season. I knew we had such a great chance of winning the trophy. I played in two other championships, but we weren't as nearly as good. I didn't care as much. I didn't play as many minutes. Like I was, I was a hundred percent in this, and it was you know we had media all week. My parents were flying out. They hadn't attended an away game in twelve years. There was just there's so much building up to this moment. And my coach then told me, I think it was Friday and the game was Sunday, that I wasn't going to be starting. Mm. And, you know, that was heartbreaking for me. All the media thought I was going to be starting. I had to do all the interviews because I was a veteran and I was a key contributor in the season. I had to pretend like I was starting. It was humiliating. And so when the game came around, I had, I had a chance of going into the game, one of three subs. One of my teammates goes down with an ACL tear, un, you know, um, they didn't expect to make a sub for her, so that's down to two subs. The game is, is up and down. We're up 1-0, then it's 1-1. One one. We go into double overtime. The third sub is put in. It's not me. So I know at that moment I'm not even going to step on the field in the greatest game of what should have been my life, right, the greatest stage I would have ever played on. And, uh, but at that point, we were up 2-1 to one in double overtime. I was like, okay, I can rationalize this in my brain because I know how much I've contributed throughout the season that – I will at least win a trophy, and I'm, I'm 34. I knew our team was going to change a lot. If you see our team now, we're not at the same level as we were last year. I, I knew that was my only chance, and that's not to sound pessimistic. You just when, when you're this age and you're a professional athlete, you have a deep sense of realism, and I knew that fleeting moment, that, that was it for me. That was my last championship that I could potentially win and, and get that elusive trophy that I didn't know I wanted so bad until I was in that moment, and... You know, I didn't even I didn't even play a minute, and uh, you know I I didn't know how to feel. I was just kind of like roaming around the field, and the way that we lost it was honestly the last kick of the game, almost like a hail mary in football. They tied the game up, and then we lost in penalty kicks. So I went from okay, I'm going to win a trophy to 
wow, we just we just lost that game, and my last opportunity to win a trophy in my career is gone. Uh, it was a lot for me to handle, and you know I was just kind of wandering around the field, and my coach comes up to me. He apologizes for not getting me into the game. I am heartbroken. I just I just start crying. Like all the the waves of emotion hit me, and you know I was walking over to my parents, and I, I felt humiliated to a certain extent. Like that was the greatest, probably the, the greatest personal rejection I'd ever faced on national television in the final game, losing it, not playing a minute. My family is there to watch me play. And it was, it was really hard for me to face. And people, people know how invested I am. People know how much I care. So I, I know that people were devastated for me. So I want you to, to do this for me. Can you compare that pain, uh, the emotional pain, you used the word humiliation, can you compare that pain to walking off the field after you tore your ACL? And I don't mean, well, I'll just leave it at that, the pain of, of walking off the field after you tore your ACL. Yeah, I think it's it's similar yet not because to a certain point you're, you are shattered. As a human being, your identity is shattered. Um, the championship game, I, I still had more hope because it was one game and then I, st- I had the next season to come back to. And, uh, you know, when I walked off the field with my torn ACL, that, that was harder to deal with because there are so many unknowns, right, of how is your body going to deal with the surgery? Um, how are you going to come back through physical therapy? And soccer has been such a huge part of my life that um, the loss of identity in the championship game was more of, you know, as a starter, as a contributor, as a professional, that, that was a know humiliating moment for me um but to tear your ACL it's it's almost as if your entire identity is taken away because I've played professional soccer for 13 seasons I haven't missed a game in seven years mm. and and then I go down I'm going to miss the entire season and you know obviously my goal is to come back and um, to play again but like we talked about why, why is that a goal uh, I mean why is it a goal to play again yeah uh, because uh I I care so much about the sport I would I would play until I, you know, I'm, my legs give out on me and I have to be dragged off the field because uh, the, I get to do what I love every single day. I, people pay to watch me chase a soccer ball. I don't know who I fooled in this world to get that job, but I somehow have. And I'm so grateful every single day that I get to wake up and I have the platform to uh, make a difference in this world through the sport that I love. What do you love about it? I love I love the the whole idea of teamwork. I love coming to to work and knowing I'm going to be working with people that I care about and that I love. I love knowing that uh, for me specifically, uh, the player that I am, I can't take my foot off the gas pedal. I have to be on my game every single day to earn every minute I have on the field. Even, you know, last season, second leading you know, tap for the second leading goal scorer, I still didn't even start in the championship game. So, I've had to literally earn Every time I walked over that line, it was because of the work I put in, not because of what was given to me. And, you know, as a women's professional soccer player, you have an incredible platform to affect another human being. A lot of the fans in our league uh, at some point have, have felt left out or have been felt pushed aside or ostracized or discriminated against. And women's soccer has given them something to believe in and to know that they are so passionate about our sport and passionate about the individuals who play that sport. A lot of them are, you know, usually gay, and I'm an out professional athlete. And to 
to get letters every few weeks, of, you know, thanking me for who I am and for, you know, people saying that, that I've inspired them to come out to their family or to, to feel more comfortable in their own skin. Uh, I think that's the greatest compliment I could ever get. Was that a mantle you took on as soon as you came out? You're, you're all in, or is that something that you had to uh, develop into sort of your comfort level, not with coming out, but with using it as a platform to inspire others? I don't think necessarily at first I, I looked at it that way. I thought I'm just going to be 100% me, unabashedly myself every single day. And I know how unique of a position I am in to go to work every single day and to get to be 100% myself. Most people go to work, they have to put on corporate hat or uh, you know they work for the government. A mask. And, yeah, or a suit and a tie and a mask. And I get to go every day. And I'm, not only am I accepted, but I am adored for, for who I am being this like crazy little lesbian people just absolutely <laughs> love it so uh it, it encourages me it gives you know, it gives me a lot of um hope and faith that if if i can somewhat shine a light and um show that it's okay to be yourself that other people will want to also do the same and i think you know the longer i played and the bigger brand that i grew i realized how much of a difference i could make and you know, that means more to me than any goal or any assist I could ever have is that people, um, you know, feel more comfortable with who they are because of, of what I've done. And you've obviously developed, you've grown. If you're going to take on a growth mindset with the intensity that you have, uh, there's a lot of growth to be had. What do you hope to continue to grow and evolve? What are things that you hope to develop? I think that it's been a very interesting journey for me because... I, as a, having the growth mindset, you're never, I know I'm never perfect and I know that I'm always changing and I'm always um, figuring out ways to develop. And even now with like, you know, we talk about gender expression. Um, we all, I always thought about gender as binary, you know, women and men, like there's only two sides of the story. And I've, I think I fall somewhere on that spectrum. Uh, I believe I'm a woman, you know, my pronouns are her or she, and, uh, but at the same time, I know that I don't look like the traditional woman, and I'm very proud of that now. I, I want to use my platform to really expand the definition of what a woman can look like, and I face that every single day, you know, walking into women's bathrooms, walking into women's locker rooms. It's very uncomfortable for me because people look at you differently, and they often question if you're in the wrong room, um, and it's something that, that used to really personally hurt me and and now you know I've, I've learned it's you look them you look them in the eye and you humanize whatever fear that they have because a lot of people fear what they don't know and they think that something that's different is dangerous so I would really like to use my platform to continue to um, push this gender revolution that we're having and to show the world that we don't have to fit into little boxes you know we don't it's okay not to feel safe all the time because uh, you know things that are different are not necessarily going to hurt you um, and I, I completely believe in the idea of defining your own beauty. And I, I, well, we're going to talk on this a little bit because this is, if the podcast is called Beyond the Surface, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to go into that. You know, I think that there is a, you hit on something so nice, which is like, if somebody is afraid or fearful, or even if they're bigoted or hateful or whatever word you want to choose to use, but we do a really bad job as a society of is addressing that person and communicating with them and having dialogue. 
and understanding that, you know, the person that's looking at you in the bathroom, like, from your perspective, okay, that's okay if you are feeling a certain way. Like, you talked about feelings. You, you've, you've aligned your feelings and, and sort of knowledge in your head and your gut. That's a great place to be in, but a lot of people aren't in that place. And that's okay. Maybe they can grow and get into that place. I know I feel uncomfortable around certain people all the time. They don't look like me. They don't talk like me. Uh, they don't walk like me. They don't dress like me. It's not the feeling of discomfort that's the issue. It's the lack of awareness of the feeling of the discomfort and saying like, whoa, Brian, dude, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And so I think we've done a bad job in teaching, like telling people to be colorblind. Like, yeah. what is that? Yeah. Like, no, you're not going to be colorblind. Mm -hmm. Like, you're going to notice someone looks different. You're going to notice somebody is, you know, it, if I'm a heterosexual male and two women are walking down the street holding hands, I'm going to notice. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I hate gay people or hate lesbians. But for me, it's, it's about learning about, like, all right, Brian, what would you feel there? Mm -hmm. Why would you feel that? And how do we improve and progress to make sure that the next time I do that, I'm aware of the feeling and then I'm able to shift. And that shifting, the awareness and then the shifting, to me is the wheelhouse that I live in every day. Because it's the same thing when I'm on a soccer field and I have self-doubt or self-criticism or hatred or whatever it might be. And it's hurting my ability to perform. I need to be aware and then I need to shift. And to me, they're very similar, which is the notion of like, how do I build awareness within myself and then have the inner dialogue and the inner strength to say, oh, you know what? That's not the path I want to go down. I don't want to participate in that. Let me shift and go in a different direction. Like one of my favorite things is when I encounter homeless people. Like there's some tension in me when I encounter a homeless person. How do I want to handle that situation? Do I want to smile? Do I want to wave? Do I want to give them a dollar? You know, those are decisions that you get to make and at the end of the day, I get to decide my action, but I don't necessarily get to decide the thoughts that flood my brain. And we've made this uh, mistake to say, like, no, you shouldn't have those thoughts. Mm -hmm. We all have hateful thoughts. Yeah. We all have harmful thoughts. We all have thoughts of doubt. None of us are uh, immune to that. <laughs> but it's the ability to take those thoughts, be aware of them, maybe sit, and then shift into the action that we want to take. And I think if we start teaching that in school, we start teaching that to our kids, hey, you're going to have thoughts that aren't always going to be helpful. They're, they're going to be anxious. They're going to be uh, fast. They're going to be aggressive. They're going to be shy. They're going to be nervous. They're, you know, There's all kinds of different thoughts. If we can learn to accept and then shift, that to me is so much power. And uh, I was a sociology major in college uh, and an African-American studies minor. And I grew up down the street from here, so not... I was in Montgomery County, mm -hmm. and when I was growing up, I, you know, was not the minority as far as my looks. I was not the minority as far as my sexuality. I, you know, I never felt like that. But you go to be a sociology major on a college campus, you're, mm -hmm. as a white, heterosexual male, like, all of a sudden I was a minority. So I had to learn and feel, like, all right, what's a question that might be appropriate to ask yeah. here? How do I say things? And then I go to the classes at African American Studies, and all of a sudden I'm looking around, everyone looks different than me. 
but to put yourself into those situations and understand like, whoa, pump the brakes and then adjust to me is the same thing that an athlete has to do when they're dealing with self-doubt or self-criticism or perfectionism or fear of failure or whatever the big taboo thing is for them that impacts their performance. So I'm glad you brought up your story because I even wonder if you can connect those dots as a strong female athlete with someone who's saying, yeah, and I am a lesbian, and that's also a part of my identity. Mm -hmm. And here are the tools I use on the field. And by the way, here are some tools that might be able, might help you deal with me being in the bathroom with you. Yeah. I, I wonder if you can connect those dots and if something special would really happen from that. You brought up like so many... I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> no, you brought up so many great points. And I just recently did a diversity and inclusion training for a company virtually online. Super cool. And I talked a lot about the issues you just brought up. And I think... Human beings are multidimensional. We have so many layers, and we're built on contradictions. And I think we fail to realize that, or we're afraid to admit that about ourselves. I am not just a soccer player. I'm not just a lesbian. I am not you know, just a woman. I am so many complex things. And I have come to realize that it's not, you know, we can, we can supplement any word into this, but it's not how beautiful you are. It's how you are beautiful. It's, you know, how are you fun? How are you complex? How are you crazy? All of these things, because all of us have all of these characteristics. And when we take a step back and we realize that, yes, we do have differences, and the dif but the differences lie within the similarities. Because we're all a little bit crazy, you know, and we're all, we're all beautiful in our own ways. And so when I did this diversity and inclusion training, I defined, you know, diversity as understanding that we are, you know, very multidimensional as human beings. I broke it down from the macro level to the micro level, because on the macro level, we have a hard time feeling like we can make a difference. We have a hard time understanding how does this affect us because it's such a huge issue. When you break it down to the micro and you look, and I said like Michael Jackson, at the man in the mirror, and you, you look at yourself in, in such a deep and self-reflective way, in a truthful way, because like you said, we all have good days, we all have bad days, a lot of it comes down to circumstances. I'm not always a great person. You know, I have moments where I can be a complete asshole probably. And... Yeah, it's understanding that we are built on contradictions, and that's where the beauty lies. And then the inclusion is you know, not just accepting it, but loving ourselves for those contradictions, loving ourselves for our faults and our flaws, because life is not lived on Instagram. You cannot filter everything. Not everything is happy. There are moments where I've been heartbroken or I've been so sad, and I've, I've wanted to sit in those moments, and I've wanted to feel that, because you know, that's what a human being that's what it is. It's, it's to feel those feelings. And when we, I feel like now we tend to numb a lot of that. Like we don't, we don't want to feel. Can you imagine if you didn't feel? First of all, you'd be a sociopath, <laughs> right? Like that is, like I always say, like that is the definition of uh, a sociopath doesn't feel. Right. And so I think you're right. Without sadness, there'd be no happiness. And you have to feel the sadness to feel the happiness. Um, I want to go back a little bit and, and shift gears a little bit because we can go down this rabbit hole and talk all day and I don't even think it's rabbit hole. I think it's a really useful yeah. uh, conversation and maybe we'll continue it some other time. Um, but from a mentality standpoint, what would you do before games or what do you do before games to get yourself ready to perform? Any mental skills, any tools in your toolbox that you utilize so that when you get on the field, you're clear? Yeah, I think a lot of, you know, I work one-on-one -on -one a lot with a lot of clients um, youth players in the area and they always ask you know how do I have confidence on a game day on Saturday and I say confidence comes from preparation right if if you feel like all week you've done everything within your power to be prepared for that weekend 
that's where you have to let go, right? You have to let go of what the outcome will be and know that you've done everything under your control to be the best player you can be that day. Let me jump in. Now we're talking our language. All right, so I agree with you. I think preparation is the starting point. It's the baseline. It's the foundation for where confidence then comes from. But you've played a lot of soccer over the years with kids. I'm sure you had teammates at Penn State who were very prepared but didn't perform with confidence. I'm sure you played professional soccer with people that were very prepared and didn't perform. And, and also I think one of the things people don't realize on the outside of sport looking in is that you don't get to play pro or college sports if you're not prepared. Like, mm-hmm. it just doesn't work. Yes, there are anomalies that don't practice as much or don't watch film, but the, the way the system, it's rigged for you to prepare. So let's try to unpack that a little more. What do you think it is between maybe you and a person next to you that you do have the confidence and maybe they don't even though you're both prepared? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think I think confidence is like a shooting star. It's it's so it's so hard really to catch and it often comes from form and then but form comes from confidence. So it's, you know, which one um, is it the horse or the carriage that comes first? And I think, you know, going I've played for so long that you you have to trust. You have to trust that to a certain extent where you're fearless and you play to the point, this is what I tell my clients, is you play to the point where you're almost out of control. Mm-hmm. And you have to find that delicate balance because you have to be willing to put yourself out there to make mistakes um, and believe that if you make a mistake, you know, it's not going to con- you know, consecutively happen throughout the game. Um, but also, too, within a team sport, it's like it's playing your role. So it, it is a very delicate balance, and I think it comes from a strong understanding of what your strengths are, um, what the game requires of you that day, what your coaches want you to do that day. Uh, I think what's great about playing a team sport is that you realize you are a part of something bigger. This is not about you. So you know, figure out you know, what is your role for that specific game. Talk to your coaches. Get an understanding of that. Ask them what they expect of you for that, for that game. Most of the time you may know, but it's good to get that reinforcement. Um, and if you had... If you had- if your coach had tapped you on the shoulder that championship game and said you're you're the first sub go in there at the fifty seventh minute, um, do you think you would have been confident? I, I mean, I'm sure I would have been terrified out of my mind because yeah. when you go on the field, you just think just don't f it up, right? right? <laughs> but um, I think I think fear is a natural feeling to have, and mm-hmm. I think fear, if it's used in a positive way, can be a productive emotion. Right? If, if your life doesn't scare the crap out of you, you're not doing something right. Mm. And if you're constantly living in with, like, within your comfort zone, that is boring. So you know, I would want to be a player that a coach can rely on in those moments. And for me, you know, going into those games, because I've been a sub a lot in my life, it's, you, you have to understand that your coach trusts you to put you in. And second of all, whatever skills that you have, you know, don't try to overdo it. Just do what you're good at. Um, and if you stick to those things and what you know and what you're confident in, the rest will kind of flow from there. Yeah, I have two thoughts on confidence. One, competence is more important than confidence. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of times you're right, it's fleeting, and I think confidence tends to be a feeling, whereas competence is being. Mm-hmm. Like I am competent versus I feel confident. Uh, like let's just say both of our knees were perfectly good knees, and we went out and played soccer right now. I didn't play high school soccer. I stopped playing soccer in eighth grade you would kick my ass, right? Like, the reason you'd kick my ass is because you're more competent. Now, I work with athletes to help them build confidence. So let's just say I'm the most confident guy on the planet. 
you're still going to kick my ass because you're more competent. So I think one of the ways you can actually improve your confidence is to focus on your competence, which is what mm-hmm. you're talking about. What's my role? Mm-hmm. What do I need to do? How do I need to do it? So rather than focus on feeling confident, let's focus on being competent. Right. Uh, who I am rather than how I feel. Because yes. feelings, emotions, thoughts, they all come and go. They have a shelf life. They expire, and then something else takes its place. Mm-hmm. But my competence level, like that's pretty standard. That there's a, You've worked to create a baseline, a foundation of competence. The second thought I have on confidence is where I've really come to understand it is that it's all about the interpretation. So um, how am I talking to myself? What's the dialogue? Uh, when coach tells you, Joanne, I believe in you. You can do this. You can make it happen. Are you sitting there being like, gosh, coach believes in me? Yeah. I don't know if I can do this. Like, I, What's the reason that he thinks that I'm capable of doing that? Versus, yeah, I'm ready. I'm prepared. I've put in the work. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to go. Let's go out and play soccer. Those are two different conversations that you can have with yourself that impact your confidence. So I think really simply put, uh, competence is actually more important. And the second part is let's talk to ourselves rather than listen to our thoughts. Let's talk to ourselves, And that's where thinking comes from. So I, I, I've come to understand that. And in my life is like when there's self-doubt, I sort of accept that self-doubt. And then I shift to why am I competent? Yeah. And why can I do this? And if I start talking to myself in that manner, it frees me up to go do what I know how to do. Um, so that's the confidence piece. Um, have you ever done any meditation, visualization, any of that sort of stuff from a mental skill standpoint? I do visualization, but it's nothing formal. It's more of just picturing in my mind you know, what I do when I get the ball, um, good plays that I tend to make in a game. You know, I think also it's, it's important to keep that realistic. You know, I'm not going to imagine myself blowing past defenders because that's just not my game. Right? It's imagining myself doing the simple things properly. And we talk about competence. Um, and I thought you made a really good point is that you know, confidence is a feeling. And how do you, really, how do you turn a feeling into action, mm. productive actions, deliberate, effective, productive actions? Um, and you, you play a sport, and I didn't realize this, so I really got into soccer a couple years ago, started working with DC United, and they've taught me a bunch. Like I grew up playing, I thought I knew, eh, I didn't really know. There's a couple things about soccer that are unique that are different in a, than other sports. One, you can go back. You can go side to side. You can go forward. Uh, whereas a lot of other sports, like, you're, you're probably going straight ahead. Mm-hmm. And in soccer, you have constant decisions that you can make. And, you know, those decisions, they can be super aggressive. They can be simple. Um, so, one, I want to find out about your decision-making process when you're playing soccer. And two, you mentioned the word simple. This is the other part that fascinates me about soccer. Simple is useful, but creativity is also massive in this mm-hmm. sport. How do you balance simplicity with creativity? I think you know who you are as a player. I'm, I think you're put on the field to do certain things. And at this level, you know your strengths and your coaches know your strengths. And the, the essence of being a professional is the consistency of doing the simple things right. And you know, for me personally, I'm a player. I'm not a super creative player, so I'm not going to go out on the field and do a thousand different moves and try to chip balls over the top, serve players in, and, and be who I'm not, right? I'm, I'm on that field to be exactly who I am. And in, in my game and in my team, you know, I am the little energizer bunny. I'm put on the field to chase balls down, to win the ball, and give it to a more creative player. So it's, it's that holistic understanding of who you are and what the team expects of you and your role and then being able to break it down play by play and understanding that 
the game is the game is is of inches, right? Like every game and every sport is is a sport of inches. It doesn't come from one spectacular play. It it all breaks down to every single decision that is made. So on the field, you know, focus. My coaches always say the pass that you're making is the most important pass you're going to make all game. Mm. Like keep that in your brain. Like don't look one play ahead. Don't uh, you know? Don't look one play behind you if you made a mistake. Like focus exactly and be in that moment. And you just have to trust that the competence that you have and all the training that you've put in will allow you to excel in that moment. Yeah, we, I use a phrase, be where your feet are. Mm-hmm. And in soccer, it, it really works because yeah. it's literally like, where are your feet and where do you need mm-hmm. to go? Uh, and I think a lot of soccer players run into trouble because if they turn it over the last two times or they're worried about getting yanked, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're going to be subbed out. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why they're not going to be where their feet are. The crowd saying something, an opponent's doing something, ref you know, hasn't made a couple calls, uh, but that ability to be where your feet are is so clutch. Mm -hmm. There are themes throughout your life that I just want to bring out that are relevant. Humble, hardworking, authentic, vulnerable, uh, fearless. Uh, There are things that you truly value that as you tell your story and as you told your story, that's what you said you want to be when you get out on the field. I know who I am. I'm authentic. Uh, I'm going to be humble. I'm not going to try to do things that you know, are outside of what I'm capable of. I'm going to be fearless. I know I have to play on that edge of craziness that you talked about. Um, I'm going to be blue-collar. Like I know I'm not the fastest person out there, but I'm going to work my ass off. Um, and uh, the other word that is so across the board with you is, is gratitude. Uh, you're grateful to your parents. You're grateful for your time at Penn State. You're grateful for... We didn't even get get into you traveling around the world, which I... Maybe another day we'll find out more about. You're grateful for who you are from a sexuality standpoint and who you're becoming and who, you know all of your identity points. Um, and then the last point that I'll make is you have this great concept of linking happiness to self-fulfillment. Um, you have this great clarity around my happiness lies in knowing that I did the best I could with whatever I could. Um, and I think that if most of us look toward that rather than trying to find happiness we go towards self-fulfillment, um, we're going to be better off. Because a lot of people want to find happiness, like it's some magical pill that you take and now you're just happy. Um, but nobody's happy all the time. No one's sad all the time. We live in moment to moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I was saying, there's no good days and bad days, only moments. Yeah. And so if we can learn to appreciate those moments and try to find fulfillment in those moments, um, I think that's really a massive key. Um, here's what I want to do. I, I want to end with... Uh, you just giving an opportunity to promote yourself um, (laughs) and promote anything you're involved in. Uh, You're wearing a shirt that says the ACL Club. Uh, So as somebody who is a member of that club, a proud, caring member, I want to find out a little bit about that. And then if you could also just let us know your social media handles. I know you did a TED Talk. um, So where can people find that? There's enough out there for people to learn about you, but uh, promote whatever it is that you want to promote so that people can learn more about you and what you care about and what you value. Yeah, I would love to. Um, I recently, in the first game of the season, tore my ACL, and I think that has taught me irreplaceable lessons in life of of learning to let go and we talk about of, of being in the moment. I think that you know, that was a very hard thing for me to accept and I had a whole life planned out for myself and I realized that was a lot of weight and a lot of baggage I was carrying and that I had to let go of who I thought I was going to be. I had to let go of who I potentially wanted to be and I had to love myself for exactly who I was 
And I think this injury has taught me to be you know, a lot more compassionate and understanding. And I've always been a big believer that um, although I play competitive sport, like, you know, we're in this together. And um, we all have that natural desire to feel loved and accepted and to feel like we belong to something. And I hope that, you know, what you get from me, and it was so nice of what you said, is that, you know, I, I want to help people. And, you know, what my job and what makes it so fulfilling is that I, I feel like I get to really deeply affect another human being. And uh, I try to do that through my Instagram, which is Joanna Loman 15 my Twitter, which is at Joanna Loman, and then on Facebook, I'm Joanna Loman. And uh, I think you'll find that I, I truly seek joy. I, I try to have a lot of fun in my life. I try to really appreciate whatever moment I'm in, whether that's doing physical therapy, which I'll do soon, or you know, being on the soccer field or advocating for, for gay rights, um, traveling the world with state diplomacy and um, working and using soccer as a vehicle to create social change. And I think, I think we all have that power and every single person on this planet has a unique fingerprint and it's worthwhile. And we need to understand that. And we need to believe that what we contribute is um, a very high value. Um, and um, you know, I'll be out at the, all the spirit games. So this Saturday we have a huge game against Orlando at 4 p.m., which is also on Lifetime TV. And hopefully you'll see me out in the field in 2018. But if not, I'm always um, around the D.C. area, and I do speaking engagements. And, um, you know, I'm, my favorite word right now is I'm trying to be a celesbian. <laughs> so a celebrity lesbian. So, you know, I'm trying to hit rooftops and meet everyone that I can, and I've been hanging out with the mayor. So uh, it's, been, it's been an interesting couple of months for me, but I've, I've really, I think it's been a blessing getting injured. And um, I hope that anyone who hears my story um, believes in themselves a little bit more. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story. You know, over the course of the last hour, you've had moments of emotion, and they've been real. And I don't think that they are manufactured. I think they are authentic. And your story is your story. And I, you know, we could have unpacked a million other areas of your story, but um, I'm grateful for you sharing what you did uh, and being so vulnerable and being willing to share. I think a lot of people are are scared to do that, and uh, so I think that's props to you. And then the other thing I would say is. I interview a lot of people. So I go to the NBA Combine and the MLS Combine, and I interview people about why they want to play professional basketball or professional soccer. And so many of them say, well, I've always been good at it, which mm-hmm. you talked about for a little bit. And then I'll, and they'll say, because I love it. Mm-hmm. And then when I follow up and I ask them what they love about it, they really can't put that into words. And I think it's so clear about what you love about the ability to kick around a ball uh, for a couple hours and people actually pay you to do it. Yeah. Um, I think you have such purpose in what you're doing, though, uh, whether it's to inspire young girls or inspire people in the gay community or to just inspire people to come back from an ACL. Um, those are pieces to your puzzle that uh, you value and that you're inspiring. And you said the word yourself, which is you're looking to serve. And I think if all of us would look in that direction, the world would probably be a better place. Thanks, Brian. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Thank and you for having lo- me. look forward to getting to know you a little better and maybe having some conversations in the future. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you so much.